My son was running around before bedtime a few months ago and he fell awkwardly into the door jam to his room. My wife and I watched as his head went from red to blue to a deep purple and started to swell and kept swelling and kept swelling. And we realized that he probably needed to see a doctor. So we went to the emergency room. I dropped my wife off at the door, went and parked my car and went in to join them. But I wasn't allowed in. Due to COVID restrictions, only one parent could go in at a time. My wife had already gone in. So I returned to my car and just sat there and was afraid. But it was a different kind of feeling. It was fear mixed with helplessness or uselessness. It was something I'd never felt before. And I've felt it since, and I'm sure I'll feel it again. And I've avoided activities because I didn't want to feel that feeling again. I've hovered over my son because I didn't want him to get hurt because I didn't want to feel that feeling again. And I'm sure that's not ideal. And I'm sure it's not the best way to parent. But I wanted to have a conversation, at least with Rupesh, about it. And just talk about our fears, our anxiety, and our risk tolerance before and after having kids. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Two Nobodies podcast. My name is Kyle. I am the lesser of the two nobodies and we'll bring in the foremost nobody, Rupesh, here in one second. Today I was hoping to talk a little bit about fear, anxiety, and maybe risk tolerance around parenting. I think when children come into our lives, that changes how we view the world, particularly from a standpoint of maybe what is dangerous or what sort of things we should worry about. And that likely influences our behavior. So the activities that we partake in, things that maybe were once seen as not being too risky are maybe now deemed as being too risky and not worth the risk. I know that's certainly changed for me and I imagine it has for you too, Rupesh. But first, I should let you know I got a belly full of chicken parmigiana. Whipped up a little batch after our episode three conversation where we talked about the uh, what we would serve at our at our our dinner party and yeah that chicken parm just kind of stuck <laughs> into my head. I thought you were gonna have some beef Wellington. That's what I thought you were gonna go. <laughs> I I definitely thought about it, but I looked up a couple of recipes and I just think that's something that it's sort of expensive to do because I think you need to have a pretty nice cut of meat, and I can just picture it turning out to be this disgusting sloppy mess. So I didn't uh, I didn't have the courage. Maybe I was sort of risk averse to the outcomes of the beef Wellington meal. So I didn't make it. So we went with uh, chicken Parmesan anyways. But um, yeah, how are you doing this week? I'm doing good. I, I actually had uh, a roasted chicken and had the largest chicken breast I've ever had. <laughs> uh, it was it was delicious. So I don't know. I feel like maybe we might be falling asleep by the end of this thing with the amount of uh, tryptophan we're having. So so how do you cook a chicken when you do it? How do you uh, roast a bird? We do it through a slow cooker for the most part. Okay. We try to try to season it up. Um, if we can, we'll let it sit, and then we'll we'll put it in the slow cooker. If it's the whole chicken, if it's unfrozen, I like to quarter it. I like to kind of 
you know, be present with the animal and just, I don't know, maybe it's my fascination with anatomy in general. I'll look <laughs> at the muscles and, you know, sure. kind of a nerd that way. So, yeah, and that, so that's kind of how we cook it. Mostly it's kind of a roasted chicken or a baked chicken, something like that. Nice. Good. Yeah. Um, okay, well, this isn't a cooking podcast. We should probably move on. As I was reflecting for our conversation this week, I, I sort of tried to look up some statistics and then do some reflection as to maybe what my personal thoughts were on risk tolerance. And so maybe I'll just open the conversation with some results from a study out of Germany that looked at what people's risk tolerance was before they had kids and what it was after they had kids. Hmm. And it's pretty obvious that on average men and women experience a considerable increase in risk aversion around the time of first childbirth. And the funny thing is it can even show up up to two years before the first child is born. And uh, they think that's linked to when people start thinking about having children. Mm. But there's absolutely data that shows that people become... Um, must, much less open to taking risks when their first child arrives. And the funny thing is that it sort of hits a, um, so they become the most risk averse right after the kid is born. But by the kid, um, but by the time the child is, is older, say in their teens, their risk tolerance has kind of gone back to the level it was before they ever had a kid. So it's this really interesting little dip and I, I tried to think about where I'm at right now. So my son is two. And yeah. I in my mind, I thought, certainly I am more risk averse than I was before. Mm. And I do have one example, I think. So two years ago, I rode my bike um, year round. And so I, I rode it through the wintertime. You're crazy, by the way. <laughs> I don't understand these bikers in the winter. Do you have the fat tires? No, no. So I uh, so fat tires, usually the tire diameter is somewhere around like four inches, you know, give or take. Yeah, I have an old hardtail mountain bike, and the the tires are just under two inches. They do have studs in them, so they have like little metal spikes that kind of grip into the ice and snow. And two years ago, I had a great time uh, biking through the winter. Yeah, and for those of us, or, sorry, for those of you who are listening and don't know, Rupesh and I live in a part of the world. So we live in Western Canada, um, where the winters are significant. We get a lot of snow. Our temperatures usually uh, you can usually bank on probably a couple weeks of 35 below Celsius. Um, we've actually had a pretty good mild winter. It's been so super far. mild. Yeah. It's been, hey, I actually, feel like it's coming kind of though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I, you know, so I biked two years ago every day, uh, all through winter and I really enjoyed it. And I found that it kind of gave me this mental clarity and it helped me keep my fitness levels up through winter. Cause usually I would mm. uh, bike in the summer and then put on winter fat and then, uh, just kind of do nothing and be a fat piece of shit all through winter time. But so this one you year I donut. did it, and it was awesome. <laughs> and then I had a kid and, um, yeah. we also moved. So my commute's a little bit further this year. I tried again and I had a couple really rough days where I took some hard falls I probably mm. tried four or five days, maybe, maybe three or four days. And uh, I had some really hard falls and I found myself thinking, is this worth it? Is this, if I get injured, if I get a concussion or if I break my leg or something and I'm out of commission for a while and my wife has to look after our son, is this activity worth it? Sure. And so I stopped doing it. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm not going to do it again, 
But that's a pretty strong example to me of me being less willing to take risks now that I have a child. So what do you think about all that? Are are you more risk averse now um, than before you had your daughter? And if so, are there any examples of, that you can kind of throw my way where you have sort of noticed that? For sure. I mean, when I mean when your when your kid's first born, the first one, you're you're just scared to some extent, right? Like everything, you make sure that the child seat is properly secure. You, you know, everything is you got everything that you need to deal with. I remember, you know, just we'd go to the mall or something like that. And we'd pack like the whole feel like a whole suitcase. And then a year after, you're like, you know, you just like, oh, I don't need this anymore. But the first few times, right? <laughs> yes, like you're absolutely. just packing everything because just, a, you know, you just don't know what to expect. So for sure, uh, having fears after or more fears, I would say, were definitely there when, when Avina was born. I had this, uh, I still have these kind of fears, Kyle, where I'll wake up in the middle of the night and just think, I'm like, it's crazy, like. Did someone come into the house? Okay. Right? Like just that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's just stupid. And so these but are things just, that didn't appear before you had your daughter? Oh, for sure not. No, no. I mean, sure. Like, you know, I, after getting married, like there was a, definitely another sense of purpose of like, there's somebody depending on you. You have a partnership and you want to be there for that person. Mm-hmm. But you, but you know that, you know, if something happened to you, perhaps that that well, that person's an adult, and they, you know, maybe be able to move on. And hey, I guess it sure. just doesn't. You don't take the same sort of. Uh, uh, it's just a different approach. But with Avina, obviously, if I'm gone, we talked about presence in our first episode. Like I think about that all the time. Like I don't want to miss anything. Like I, I want to be there for all her big milestones. So I have this sort of constant operating fear of like what if I physically am no longer here, yeah. right? So that kind of, that where that definitely was not in play before. So even, so I, you you travel by bike, um, which is in, in the winter. I mean, again, like I mentioned, it sounds crazy. I mean, I take the train, so not crazy at all. But I always think about like, what if someone just kind of pushes me onto the platform or <laughs> something like, like Frank Underwood style in House of Cards or something. How many you enemies know? do you have? Okay, so I, don't, I've, I, I know I'm a nice guy. I got no enemies, but you just you never know with somebody's kind of yeah, no, no, a little off that day or something, and you hear these stories, and so those stories never existed before, and so you know I find myself like. I won't get close to that yellow line anymore, right? I'll stand a few feet back okay, and, so... and just kind of just always a little bit more observant and and just making sure like that I get home safe. Yeah. Like that's really like my focus these days is just making sure I get home safe. And so I'll tell you like I walk around with a lot less anxiety working from home okay. than I did over the last little while having to take, you know, just traveling to work right yeah so. yeah because i i imagine the the riskiest or i should ask you what do you think the riskiest thing that so on a in a normal year when you were commuting mm-hmm. to work what do you think the the riskiest activity that you partook in was was it your commute to work you think yeah i mean i never felt uh unsafe at the workplace it was always just yeah that commute just there's a lot of variables there's a you know a lot of and i grew up 
I mean, I grew up in Toronto. I went on the TTC. I mean, I was in a busy urban environment. I mean, we live in Edmonton. It's not nearly comparable to, yeah. to Toronto or any other major city. And I never had those kind of fears growing up. Like I, I was used to that kind of dense urban transit kind of environment. So, but yeah, for some reason, something has changed for sure. Interesting. Um, so ever since it's been born. So from your perspective, it's, it's not so much that you were partaking in, in an activity that maybe could be seen as being risky, but you've almost got this increased, and I'll use the word anxiety, but that might not be accurate, but you've almost got this, this danger uh, radar now or this or because i mean even like the uh somebody breaking into your house that's not that realistic of a threat like it happens right but i'm sure that the yeah um that the occurrences of that occurring are super low but so for you it's almost like you become hyper aware uh, of things that could go wrong no matter how unreasonable they are so do you find that so i guess pre-daughter and post-daughter have you uh do you find that your anxiety levels have increased a little bit yeah i mean absolutely how could they like i feel almost how could they not just you know it's just your kids are so precious right and you just you want to you want to make sure nothing happens to them my fear is not even like around i mean obviously the the somebody breaking into our house the fear on that one is of course something happening to your kid right but but the the other stuff is just more so being present. I'm not. I don't have as much. I don't have anxiety about the way Avina operates in her life. Yeah. Like I think we've talked about this. Like we've never had guardrails for our um, uh, for the stairs, and and part of that was because we just kind of monitored her behavior, and I just noticed that she seemed like she was kind of risk averse and took things cautiously. So we just kind of really taught her how to go up and down the stairs. I've never felt that around her. Like, I don't feel like I had to be cautious around her or, or, um, yeah, it's, it's more about, it's more about when we're, when I'm outside, like if I'm driving somewhere now, it's like, I feel like I'm paying a little bit more attention. I'm more hyper aware, like in, and perhaps like that, that makes sense to me with your study that you said about like when you're in the teens, you kind of just let go a little bit. And part of that I'm assuming is just, you know, obviously your kids have all the skills that they need mm-hmm. and they should be able to survive. Obviously you want to be there for as long as you can with your kids, but, but at least I, I suspect it would be, I mean, it makes sense that it would be easier or that you could potentially let go of that anxiety and be a little bit more, um, or less risk averse, I should say. Sure. So I think maybe um, for me, I, I have a real internal battle with the fact that I don't bike in the winter anymore. And it, you know, it it wasn't just because of my son, um, but in part it was. And so now I'm not doing this activity anymore that was physically beneficial for me, that was mentally beneficial for me. And and it's a bit of a moot point now because I'm working from home because of COVID, but. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't working from home, I don't think I, I would be biking. And so I, I got a lot of joy and a lot of um, – there were a lot of health benefits, I think, to me doing that, even though it was probably more risky than walking to work or taking transit to work or probably even driving to work. And so I started to kind of think about what about people or parents or fathers who before their children live sort of risky, risky um, lifestyles because they're passionate about a certain activity or hobby that is just inherently dangerous. And mm. 
I tried to look up some examples of people that maybe have have altered their behavior uh, or those that don't. And um, there are a bunch of those, but there's one sort of extreme example here. And um, you maybe heard of it, but there's a mountaineer named Conrad Anker. I don't know if that name means anything mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's in his, I think he's in his late 50s, early 60s now. Yeah. But he's done a lot of really, really gnarly stuff in his life. But the one story that kind of comes up around him is uh, in 1999, he was he was on this expedition to the 14th tallest mountain in the world called uh, Shisha Pengma. And he was with his climbing partner, a guy named Alex Loeb. And they were supposed to climb this mountain and, and then ski down. And I think by doing so, they'd become the first Americans to ski down from a summit of a certain elevation, like 8,000 meter peak Unreal. or something. Yeah. Unreal. Um, but during the, the climb, the, this huge column of ice broke loose above them and it caused this massive avalanche. And Alex Lowe was killed and Conrad Anker was hurt. Now, Alex Lowe had three sons at the time, three young sons and a wife. Conrad did not. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alex Lowe was kind of partaking in this in this adventure, this uh, super risky thing with his kids at home. Now, this is his profession. So it's a little different story there. So Anker goes home and sort of helps Alex's wife get through the transition. And, and her name is Jennifer. Anchor and Jennifer fall in love and they eventually get married. And Anchor helps raise these three boys. But then he continues. Are, are, these, are these boys young? They were young at the time. Yeah. Not like, so okay. this was in 1999. So it was 22 yeah. years ago now. And I, I think the kids are in their 20s and 30s now. But when it happened, they were younger. Anchor kept mountaineering for many, many years professionally. And so he mm. would continue to take this risk even though he was now responsible for this family that had already lost their father and their husband through these exact same activities. Mm. And that really sort of took me aback a little bit because that's like, what an extreme example, but he got away with it and he got away with all the benefits of it. Uh, side note here, Anchor, uh, as I was doing this research, Anchor suffered a heart attack while mountaineering in the Himalayas like two years ago and had to be hella backed off. And he survived. He's still alive. But uh, that's a pretty insane example of a a guy who um, lived this lifestyle that was inherently dangerous and had a lot of high risk. And it cost his friend Alex and his family dearly. And then he sort of assumed that father role, but he continued to do this stuff. And -hmm. the family was okay with it. Mm -hmm. And so there's, I don't know, that, that stuck out to me as a bit of a, extreme example of when somebody might remain dedicated to their passions because of the benefits that it gives them. And so I feel that like there's sort of two streams here. One is this sort of Conrad anchor example, um, you know, where he's mountaineering and sort of post and pre kids uh, or me uh, biking in the wintertime post and pre kids. And obviously I don't have mm-hmm. the same gusto as Conrad anchor because mm-hmm. <laughs> I took a fall on my bike and then I cried all, all the way home and now I don't do it anymore. So slightly different, probably. But the other stream of this is what you were talking to before, and that's probably a much more relatable aspect of this conversation, is more around maybe becoming slightly more aware of danger or a little bit more anxious when it comes to danger after you've had a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I'd just sort of look up a little bit about, because I find that I, I never thought of myself as an anxious person. Certainly before mm-hmm. kids, I never thought of myself as an anxious person but it turns out i'm an anxious person and i sort of figured that mm-hmm. out after having kids and it 
I've, mm. I'm a little bit of a helicopter parent, and I'm not proud of it, and I know that it's not a good thing, but I didn't realize that I sort of had that in my DNA. I'm definitely more anxious. I'm certainly much more aware of the dangers around. Every time my son is doing something, I feel like I'm constantly scanning for what could go wrong and then how to avoid that, and I find that that really takes away from my ability to be present with him. Interesting. Because I sort of... If he's he has this little excavator thing that he can ride around and like lift the bucket up, and sometimes he yeah. he can he can sort of fall off it awkwardly or like you know and so he'll be on that and I'll be constantly scanning. Okay, if he was to fall now, what would he hit? And I try to like move those things out of the way, and that's not that's not healthy for me, and it's probably not healthy for mm. him. And so I started thinking about if I'm a high anxiety parent around my kid, what does that do to him, or what does that teach for sure. him? And it's so I looked it up, and it's not good. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> if if I'm anxious around my kid, that makes them much more scared or much more anxious of things. And then it's linked to all kinds of things later in life, all kinds of health concerns. Yeah. Yep. And um, kids need to know the difference between danger and risk. Kids need to do things that are somewhat risky, and they need mm-hmm. to fail at those things sometimes, and they need to experience the consequences of those risky behaviors. And it's that distinction between danger and risk. So risk is can be good and can be healthy. Danger obviously is not. And so the analogy that I found on the internet was danger is just leaving your kid around an open fire or just leaving your kid mm. with a box of matches. And risk is teaching your kid how to build a fire and, and how to act around a fire. Well, I think that's just it, right? Like, because risk could also be you're trying to gain a reward too, right? It's not just like the the harm or the danger or losing something. It's you might be taking a risk because of some sort of reward as well. Yeah. And so I personally, I need to really, really keep that in check. I need to really focus on being more present and, and not only being focused on the things that could go wrong. Even, you know, I almost need to put him in situations where I expose him to a healthy amount of risk. And then when he's there, mm-hmm. I sort of need to let him fail a little bit. And I don't, that's not something that I have actively been doing. Do you do that? I, Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, sometimes I have, I've read some stuff here that it, like that type of parenting could also come from sort of your upbringing too like did you feel like your parents were that way with you i mean it's hard to know obviously when you're two or three but even just kind of growing up did you feel like your parents are sort of always trying to make sure that you were good and again trying to remove the toys so that you wouldn't uh, hurt yourself that sort of thing um i never saw it firsthand but now that i'm an adult and i can have adult conversations with my parents it it you know turns out that yes those conversations were going mm-hmm. on I, you know, I, I played sports growing up, contact sports, and that was a little dangerous. And then when I was a little bit older, I got into rock climbing and, you know, um, backcountry camping and sort of playing in wild spaces that are somewhat remote and there's a lot of danger there. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits to that stuff. And some of the best days of my life have been spent, you know, rock climbing. But there's a lot of danger there. And so since having conversations with my parents around those things, I've, you know, since found out that they were constantly aware of that stuff, but they made an effort to not mm. to not expose me to that awareness or that concern a little bit, which I really appreciate. And I think that, that that'd be a really, really hard 
thing to do as a parent, particularly putting your kid in a situation where they might fail and maybe they're going to, it might hurt to learn a lesson or two. And obviously there's a degree there that, 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 you know, that you would expose them to. You're not going to throw them into shark infested waters and tell them to swim, but mm-hmm. sort of having the idea of what that appropriate risk is. And so it was interesting having those conversations after the fact, but growing up, I was never really aware of that. I was, I, I I always felt like I was able to go and play and do things and take risks and climb trees and fall off trampolines mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. What about you? Did you, um, are you aware of, of sort of how that was with your parents? And if you are, what was it like? Well, sorry, let me go back to the throwing your kid into shark infested waters. Cause I have a funny example from when I took swimming lessons <laughs> as a kid and <laughs> my dad never pushed me into the water. never really like nudged me. He kind of just let me, get in i was terrible at swimming i think i think you know this i took adult swimming lessons at one point and that was sort of like i feel like my biggest accomplishment in life but uh, when i was a kid didn't have any care for the water and i remember seeing this dad take his kid because his kid was resisting to go in the deep end and literally grabbed and threw him in the middle of the water and i was just like oh my goodness i'm so glad i have my dad Um, so what happened to that kid or can you remember? Oh, he was crying. He, was, he seemed like he was traumatized. And I was like scared of his dad and I didn't even know him yeah. at all. But I was just very thankful that my dad, who he was, so was who he was. Yeah. So uh, I, I would say there was kind of a split. Like, I mean, my dad, my mom and dad had this general sense of worry. I think it comes back to just needing to survive, right? Like my dad came here in the, in the 60s, had nobody. It was all about getting settled and, and becoming stable and secure. And so there's always, you're constantly hyper aware of sort of the next move to make sure that you're, you're secure. I mean, when there's no, when there are no East Indian people in Toronto, pretty much he said he could count them on a, on his hand sort of thing, the number of people he met. Whereas now you go to Toronto, obviously it's completely diverse and multicultural. Uh, it's a, it's a different feeling. Right. And so you're always in this in this position of survival. And same thing with my mom, the way she grew up, you know, in the villages of India and not having any money and losing her dad early. There was always a sense of survival. So I think that definitely got projected on me, which is always a sense of worry, which I which I definitely embody. But I am very, very aware of it. And so I put a lot of resistance to that. So, so if I see myself worrying about certain things that Avina is doing, I try to catch myself and then just ask myself, why is this really bothering me right now? And kind of manage it that way. And obviously if it's something where she's going to hurt herself legitimately and it's, it becomes a teaching moment, then I, then I'll definitely take advantage of that and, and deal with it then. But if it's really something where it's like, she can make a mistake and it's not consequential, she's not going to hurt her life or or suffer from something major, then then I kind of just let her make that mistake, and and I and I've really seen the benefit of that because she, I see her processing things, I see her becoming, you know, she hurts herself and she kind of just gathers her emotions. Sometimes in kind of I we kind of, Michelle and I kind of wonder whether you know she's just burying those emotions, but I really see her processing like what is this feeling to me right now, and like and like you know, do I need to cry about it? And we'll always tell her, you know, it's okay to cry. And sometimes she will, and sometimes she won't. But you can really see that sense of process and reflection kind of starting to happen when she when she knows that it didn't go the way she wanted it to go. But had I protected her, I feel like she wouldn't 
have learned from that and she wouldn't have been able to kind of almost self-regulate. Sure. So I, I, I feel that to some extent when I was growing up, you know, my mom was definitely more of the stressor than the worrier. And my dad was also a worrier, but I think I said this earlier in a different podcast, he kind of made sure that let my roots kind of grow and just kind of came in when he needed to come into. So I kind of got a little bit of both where a little bit of freedom from my dad and letting me kind of learn and my mom being more hyper vigilant and, and more holding my hand. And so I think, uh, I'm not saying that resulted in sort of the best approach, but I, it definitely, uh, it's, it's something I resist, but also there's parts of it where I'm like, okay, that did work. Uh, and so I can, I can, I can transfer it over. So definitely had that, some of that anxiety and worry. Uh, so when you sort of sure. catch yourself, um, so you mentioned before that when you catch yourself, mm -hmm. maybe being anxious about something or worrying about something or thinking something is dangerous, but then you can kind of have a conversation with yourself. Are you mm -hmm. basically just saying, okay, Hey, what do you think is dangerous here? Oh, you think that is dangerous. Let's run through what that looks like is, is that's, and then, you know, by understanding that, okay, yeah, maybe there's a bit of a hazard there, but really the outcomes probably aren't going to be that bad it sort of appeases that and allows you to kind of move on from that anxiety or how does that conversation go between yourself and yourself? <laughs> no, cause, no, cause it's a super useful tool, like to be able to understand and control anxiety and identify when to worry about something and when to not worry about something, I think is an incredibly useful tool to have. It's really funny because like I said, the, the whole somebody coming into my house in the middle of the night, I have a much harder time controlling that for me okay right but when it comes to like other people you know whether i'm leading a team or whether it's with avena i can i can separate that for some reason i can just kind of step back i think part of it is because it's that person's journey and it's like who am i to kind of impose on that person and let them just kind of figure it out whereas for me it's kind of like well i'm, I'm dealing with myself so i can do whatever I want with that and, and let it happen. But when, when it comes to somebody else, if it's my daughter, why am I going to take that experience away from her? Mm. Right? Like that experience is going to be very, very valuable for her. Even if it's something small, like she is, um, you know, like you said, you know, someone's, uh, your kid's on a toy and they're about to fall off. That's a really valuable experience in her trying to understand her balance, sure. right? And her her physical system is just also all her sensory information is just kind of processing. And all of a sudden, if I came and tried to grab her, that learning just kind of goes away, sure. right? And so even with the, if it's like I'm leading a team, I try to I try to just let that person kind of make that mistake and figure it out and. And, you know, it's different, obviously, with an adult, but that, that always kind of comes to me. So I guess in terms of catching myself, when that anxiety comes up, I always ask myself that process would be like, uh, why is this bothering you? Okay, well, if it's a if it's a vena, this is bothering me because she has a chance to get hurt. Okay, is it is it going to be really, really bad? No. Okay, well, is there, can she learn from this? Like, this is all, I guess, happening, you know, really, sure, really yeah. quickly. So that's why when you ask me those steps, it's kind of hard to think through. Yeah. But I guess something to that effect. And then, you know, is she, if she gets hurt, I've never actually seen her look at me and be like, Dad, how come you didn't save mm -hmm. me? She's never, I've never seen her in her eyes. I mean, I don't know what she's thinking, but I've never seen in her eyes where she's been like, Daddy, how come you weren't there for mm -hmm. me? 
right? Because the follow-up that Michelle and I try to do is, you know, if something didn't go wrong, we'll let her kind of process it, kind of say if you need to cry, cry, if it's, if it's something that hurt her, and then we'll be like, okay, we'll talk her through it. You know, obviously harder to do when she's one or two and she's not communicating, yeah. but she's definitely at an age where she can speak through it now. And so it's we can ask her sort of, okay, well, what happened there? And just have her kind of reflect. And I really feel like that is absolutely making a difference for her in terms of how she self-regulates and just her own reflection when something negative happens. For sure. Well, it's, I mean, it's really impressive that you can have that conversation with yourself. So people with depression, when they seek help for it, one tool that they will give them is this cognitive behavioral therapy, I think. And it's basically exactly that conversation that um, you just talked about, or at least my limited understanding of it is, where they have them walk through uh, the scenario and maybe realize that things aren't going to be quite as bad as they think it's going to be. And they teach this tool to be able to have that conversation with yourself and sort of keep yourself in check. So I think it's really, really mm -hmm. astute, or that's not the right word, but it's it's really, really impressive that you can have those conversations with yourself and um, that really helps you sort of keep things in check or keep your anxiety in check around your daughter and also allows you to sort of evaluate those experiences from a, is this truly dangerous? Okay, it's not. She's probably going to learn something from it. Okay, I just need to kind of sit back on this one. I think that's incredibly valuable. Yeah, I, I, well, again, I still don't understand how, like in many areas of my life, I'm able to kind of talk myself through that. But in some of these other examples, like I said, the home home invasion at nighttime. Yeah, well, that's some a, of these sillier I mean, ones where I can't I can't kind of regulate that. I mean, it takes me a while, and I'm just. I don't know. Maybe there's there's got to be something. No, because I, 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 I mean, I will. On that one. Now I am more. <laughs> if like a creak in the night now catches my attention more than it ever has. Yeah. Which is kind of actually. So uh, when I was a kid, when I was like seven, my greatest fear was that somebody was going to break into my house and make me smoke cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> just because you like because you knew cigarettes yeah, were bad totally, and that yeah. was the worst thing. I, like, okay, yeah. That was probably the height of you know the. The, the campaigns, campaigns in schools yeah. and, and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, the advertising probably on like packs of cigarettes had just come out. And so I was very much aware of how bad cigarettes were for you. And I was really, really worried that somebody was going to break into my house in the middle of the night and like put a cigarette in my mouth and light it and then make me smoke it. <laughs> and that was the fear of mine for a while, which like it's pretty stupid. But at some point in my life, I was able to be like, Kyle, this is ridiculous. Like who whose agenda is it to make you smoke cigarettes the tobacco so Yeah, it's, it's just big tobacco breaking <laughs> into my room yeah. at night and making me smoke. <laughs> but you sort of realize that, okay, this is an unreasonable fear. This is an unreasonable yeah. um, source of anxiety for you. So I think it's a great tool to have, at least for you when you're looking at your daughter. And I wonder if maybe there's a way to sort of incorporate that for your, you know, for yourself. I've, I, I've sort of developed a little thing where I can have a conversation with myself and I it's not quite as um, in-depth as yours. I just say, mm -hmm. okay, I'm just dis I'm just choosing not to worry about that. And then I just don't worry about it. So that's been really beneficial to me, uh, just being able to, to just sort of flick that switch and say, I'm just not going to worry about it. But I sort of did it out of necessity because... I was a little bit of an anxious wreck, a little. Okay, I gotta admit the other, <laughs> the other little thing that happens at night. So I want to say it was probably earlier in 2020. Davina would come out of her room, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> 
and, and this is in the middle of the night and she'd uh, it's kind of dark we didn't have any night lights in the hallway or whatever and so uh she, sometimes she would just like she'd walk around the side of the bed and she'd be like mama dada we're like, Holy <laughs> crap. and uh so that happened a couple of times and then so then i was like okay i became a little more sensitive to like she has the possibility of waking up in the middle of the night so i would wake up kyle kind of one eye open and I swear I thought like the door opened and I swear I thought I heard footsteps like walking around the side of the bed. And so there was one wow, time I had my phone beside my nightstand and I turned it on. And I'm like, Avina. And she wasn't oh, there. That's... And I was like, oh, no, like it was playing mind tricks. So so that kind of also like less now because she's she's pretty she sleeps through the night and she doesn't really get up. And we have a we have a little light in the hallway or whatever. But there was a period there where I would just wake up thinking that she was right beside me. Oh yeah. And you know, a little, a little girl on top of that. That's just a horror movie right there. Yeah. Hello daddy. I'm yeah, going to yeah. eat your skin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Oh, God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's kind of spooky. As you were like laying that story, I, I kind of got goosebumps a little bit. That, that's sort of creepy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was, I was going to say though. So, I mean, we talk about risk taking in that, you know, lessons can be learned. Kids can make mistakes. They should, that's a good thing. There was some stuff that I did read where it links actually risk-taking. So there, there have been, there have been studies in adults and also in teens to show that risk-taking can actually lead to antisocial behavior. Now, when I first read these kind of, I read these psychology studies, when I read antisocial, I guess I had a certain thought about what that meant. Not that just meant like just not talking to anybody, yeah. right? But I guess they have a kind of a more defined, uh, a, a, a more crisp definition of what antisocial behavior is. So it's like aggression uh, where you're kind, uh, covert antisocial. So that's like where you're doing things in a concealed manner. So lying, stealing, conning, okay. doing some vandalism, that kind of stuff. And then they call it oppositional defiant behavior, which that just means like, you're disobedient towards authority figures. So you could be argumentative or vindictive towards them. And so a lot of these studies have been done with adults and teens, but there was a study that was done on children. So the ages of seven to 11, and they found that there is actually a risk as well uh, between these kids who are more of a risk takers and them expressing more antisocial behavior. What does behavior. risk taker mean? Like what kind of behavior is is considered to be risk-taking behavior yeah so it'd be like you know just increasing your chance of experiencing danger oh. or or creating harm to yourself or maybe you're losing something right it could be like like maybe gambling like losing some money or just losing some okay right or or it could be risk-taking towards getting some sort of reward right Interesting. so so people who experience who who uh, are more risk takers kind of behave in those ways. And so they're saying that these kid, the kids between ages 7 to 11, and it seemed like it was more prevalent in boys, but uh, ages 7 to 11, that um, higher risk takers experience more, uh, express more antisocial behavior. Hmm. And they were saying like that the risk taking kind of arises from this sort of interplay between uh, a, a kid's like social emotional tendencies so like they're they're wanting to seek rewards they're willing they're 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 wanting to seek 
you know, different kind of feelings or sensations, or it could be even like their sensitivities to like punishment, right? Uh, or if they don't have the ability to have cognitive control, they're calling it. So like that could be like if they are more sensitive to impulses or they have less ability to self-regulate. So it's it's this interplay between like these these emotional tendencies and their cognitive control. So then I started to think about, okay, as I was reading this, I was like, what is like this cognitive control impulses and self-regulate? Okay, well, that seems like, you know, we have, I'm sure your son has had tantrums, oh, yeah. right? Every, every two-year-old has this. And so I say, okay, I've definitely seen impulsive behaviors and, 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 you know, Avina's inability to maybe self-regulate her emotions and kind of go into tantrums. So I tried to dig into that a little bit more. And sort of what I found was that impulsive behavior, they say typically occurs in children with ADHD and other behavioral disorders. And it's related to like, you know, acting on a whim or without thought. And the interesting thing was that I guess there's a lot of science to, to um, looking into like, are there parts of the brain that kind of predispose people to to being more impulsive or maybe a certain part of the brain is not functioning but there was a study out of cambridge that actually said no it's not a dysfunction of a certain part of the brain but it's actually poor connectivity within the brain so different regions of the brain which can actually uh lead to some sort of impulsive or impulsive behavior and so so in order to I guess there are, I was reading this from uh, the center, I guess, I think it's in the States. It's called the Brain Balance Achievement Center. Mm, sounds very nice. <laughs> but very, very descriptive. Yeah. yeah, I would, I would, uh, I'd want to go there for my impulsive behaviors. <laughs> um, but so they were, they're really trying to focus on how to um, do activities that really drive connectivity within the brain. But they were saying just tips in general for, for parents who, who have kids who are experiencing, who are expressing impulsive behavior, they're saying, if your kid is, let's say, I don't know, let's say your son is interrupting you and your wife in the middle of a conversation, and that could be kind of impulsive, I guess, is to raise awareness to your son and say, hey, you know, mom and dad are just in this conversation right now. You interrupted, you interrupted, wait until mommy and dad are done and we'll get back to you kind of thing and so just even them having that check now that oh i actually did something impulsive that can sort of really help so just really Mm -hmm. cueing it and making them aware of that impulsive behavior they're saying that you know in that same situation another behavior could be that you could have you know i could have my daughter just put her hand on my arm as i was talking to as i'm talking to michelle for her and, t- and tell her, okay, if you want to talk, if, if you want to say something, just put your hand on my arm so I know that you want to say something, almost like a raise your hand sort mm-hmm. of thing. And then I can kind of uh, cue you in. So you're kind of signaling to me, you're kind of developing that little bit of control. She knows that, okay, I have a, I have a, um, daddy's recognized me and he's going to put me in the queue for when I can talk, right? So that's like another thing. But I guess if there's, you know, if there's more of an aggressive behavior, they could maybe channel that differently. They're even saying like biting into a pillow and stuff like that. And the funny thing is, I don't know if your son did this, but I remember Avina having, you know, there, I, and I don't know if this was because she was trying to regulate herself or if she was trying to just 
channel that aggressive behavior but i remember she was she would like bite on things and be like ah and just kind of frustrated and just like tear try to tear through things and we're like holy like that's like really but in some ways if if sort of what they're saying is true that actually might be a good way for her to be like oh i just i had to say something but i can't or like you know i need to do something but they're not letting me do it and like just allow her to channel that differently rather than her you know, punching a wall or, or hurting herself in a more aggressive yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, um, for, you know, for sure there's, he's still learning how to deal with frustration or even what it is and how he mm-hmm. shows that will vary kind of depending on like if he's hungry and he's really tired or something, he like, he'll hit and bite sometimes. Mm-hmm. But my wife is very good at letting him know that right now you are feeling frustrated. And when we feel frustrated, mm-hmm. here are things we can do. And, trying to teach him to take deep breaths and count to three and all that stuff to sort of find a way to deal with that frustration. But, you know, for sure, like he gets frustrated, doesn't know how to, he, he doesn't know why he's feeling that way and he doesn't know how to handle it. So he just expresses it in whatever way comes to mind right away. And so maybe that's where that, that whole impulse thing comes in. He thinks, well, I'm feeling really weird and I don't know why, but I'm mad and I'm frustrated and I'm just going to hit dad or, you know, whatever it is. And so we try to teach yeah. him that's not right. Uh, the impulsing thing, uh, the impulse control thing is interesting. There's a study that, that, that shows up in just about every um, self-improvement book on the market. And it's, mm. I, I, I can't remember any of the details of it, but basically there, it was in the seventies. I think there was a study done uh, and it's, it's referred to as like the marshmallow test. So basically you, you bring a kid into a room, you put a marshmallow on a plate and somebody comes in and says, Hey, you can have that one marshmallow right now or, you can wait for me to come back and you know the person leaves for five ten minutes or something like that and when i come mm-hmm. back if that one marshmallow is still there then you can have two marshmallows two and the kids that waited for two marshmallows um later on in life showed a plethora of plethora plethora of um things that we would consider to be positive traits so like better emotional regulation i think they scored higher on, right. on iq tests and a bunch of other stuff that i can't remember but that's all linked to impulse control and so kids that show the ability to have kind of impulse control and um you know maybe even a bit of uh delayed gratification there are some strong benefits to that later in life so that that kind of all folds in i think to kind of the studies maybe that you looked at I'm still trying to figure out my impulse control in in a lot of ways, right? Like it's we a lot of us are, yeah, for I mean, sure. I I get frustrated and I have impulses, and I, you know sometimes I'll get mad and you know whatever you like raise your voice or um, what I do. He was we were sort of having a bit of a tete a tete the other day, and uh, he kept trying to pull this cloth through my hand because he wanted to hit me with it, and I just like threw the cloth down, and you know afterwards I was like, well, like what's that teaching him? You know, okay, so now mm-hmm. it's okay. They're like when we're frustrated to throw our things down mm-hmm. or whatever, right? And so there's some impulse control that I can improve on. And so now I'm trying to teach that to a kid, which is sort of funny because somebody could probably teach it to me. But all very interesting. And um, I don't know, it's, uh, I feel like the less anxious we become, the better that it is for everybody that we're around. And I, and I was sure. wondering if you, Sometimes I will do breathing exercises or there have been periods in my life where I get into meditation a lot and I'm I'm really, mm-hmm. really inconsistent with it. Right now I haven't been meditating much at all, which is unfortunate, but I find that when I am meditating or even doing breathing exercises, it really, really helps me with 
anxiety is one, but things like impulse control. But so when it comes to anxiety, do you do anything like that? Any um, breathing exercises or meditation or something along those lines? I definitely will um, take time to do some breathing for sure. And, and especially in the mornings, I do that just to kind of set my day right. You know, I, I do my workout and then I'll kind of lie down and just do some really deep breathing and, and just kind of calm myself down. And I find that really just kind of lowers my, my baseline for my anxiety to a much lower level. So it takes a long time for things to build up. Mm. So, so that really helps. Generally, I would say, you know, as, as I gave those examples of me being anxious and having fear, but generally it does take me a lot to kind of rile me up. Right. And so, uh, I don't know, I don't know, that's probably a number of factors. Uh, I know I've actively tried to work on that. I always try, I try to put myself in these kind of anxious situations and just try to let myself learn and be as present and reflective as I can. But I guess the reflective piece is also something that kind of helps me um, reduce my anxiety as well. So when something, I know I gave that example of like, you know, if Avina is about to do something that could hurt her, I try to just really talk to myself Mm -hmm. through it. And, and that really, I think, I think as I built a great deal of self-awareness, when I do talk to myself, I know that I can trust what I am telling myself and those thoughts that are coming through. So there is like little doubt about it. And so it's like, okay, you actually do feel this way. And it just kind of calms me down. I don't know how to explain that, but I found that as I've gotten more self-aware, I have been able to emotionally regulate myself and have been able to calm myself quicker and more effectively than I did before. Sure. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, So as far as tools to help deal with sort of fear and anxiety, I feel like we've talked about sort of that, having that, that, that kind of conversation with ourselves to sort of run through maybe the, the situation and maybe what the consequences are and sort of the benefit to the kid and all that stuff. Sort of talk yourself down and then breathing exercises and helping us being more present. Um, I don't know. Like those are, well, I, 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 th- I think the other, the other thing, and this is what I learned in, in uh, this is what I'm learning in therapy is that with fears, you know, there might be this kind of rooted limiting belief, like something that you're kind of, you know, you might be, you might be expressing, you know, okay, I'll just admit that like this, I think we're all to some extent can be people pleasers there. That's certainly a tendency of mine. And so to, to need to be a people pleaser. Well, what's, what's, why am I doing that? There must be some sort of, um, belief there that's kind of, that's rooted in order for me to need to be a people pleaser. And so I've kind of uncovered that, uh, this fear of people not liking me or people not responding positively. It's because one of the limiting beliefs that I have in my life is not, is, is not wanting to be a disappointment. Mm. And so I think that's the other piece. So as far as, you know, obviously there are these kind of in real time controls that we've kind of talked about, but in terms of that sort of longer term development, I think, I think people need to kind of, and and you, you may be able to do this on your own. I wouldn't have been aware of this had I not gone to counseling for it, but it, there is, there seems to be 
that these fears are anchored on these kind of limiting beliefs that you have about yourself. And so you're needing to do these things in order to, in order to suppress those fears, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, I, so I guess I, I just want to, you know, in terms of what we're talking about, but even to anyone who's listening to this, is that I think it's, it's much, some of this stuff is much deeper than just implementing, you know, daily breathing and meditation and stuff. There could be some deep-rooted things that you would have told yourself, you know, early on as a child and kind of held with you that is just creeping up you know, now into how you might be parenting your kid or the anxiety that you might be feeling on a day-to-day basis. And I know that I am certainly at this moment uncovering that for myself. Super, super vulnerable moment for your pastor. And I really appreciate the, um, the insight and sort of the flag that you're right. I hope people don't think that us talking about anxiety and, um, you know, me saying that people can do breathing exercises or whatever it is to sort of get past that, that it's all, that it's this simple problem and it's, it's this easy thing to fix. And, um, that's not always the case. So I think that that's an incredibly important flag, Rupesh. Um, yeah, no, no. So, so certainly happy that, that, that you brought that up. Um, that was, uh, I appreciate you acknowledging that. Cause that's actually the first time I've said that. Out really? Loud. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's something I just talked to, Talk to Michelle about so. Well, I mean, um, we, I mean, yeah. you know, in an honest <laughs> moment when we did kind of start talking about doing this podcast, uh, one of the things that, that that you had said repeatedly is we need to be vulnerable on these podcasts, um, and I and that's probably what kind of brings about the best conversations and and um, you know creating a space to be vulnerable and I and you know even how that's related to masculinity and you know talking about our some previous episodes that, you know, that we've right. done that being vulnerable isn't always something that men do. And so I, I think it's, mm-hmm. it's really important for us to, to do that as we kind of pursue this creative project. And I'm, so I'm extremely glad that, that you were able to do that and, and that you chose to share it. Cause I think that that's a, it's an important part of what we're trying to do. Yeah. Thanks. I, I, I did want to with, um, there was, there was two pieces. Uh, there's one piece I, I forgot to mention actually that just came to my mind. So I did talk about sort of the impulse behavior and some of those tips and, you know, different parts of the brain not being connected to each other. The other piece was that sort of in terms of cognitive control was being able to self-regulate. And we've used that word a number of times and sort of, I guess this, this sort of psychological definition, I guess, is this ability to manage your emotions and behavior in accordance with the demands of your situation. And so this means that, you know, you resist highly emotional reactions to something that might upset you, um, you know, to be able to calm yourself down when you get upset, to adjust to when things, when the expectations are changing and to just sort of handle frustration without an outburst. And so I, so I was reading into this in terms of, okay, well, how do you, how does a kid self-regulate? And so some of this can actually be innate, and we kind of talked about in that in terms of our parents. So you might be getting this from your your parents' personalities, uh, or or there could be just this sort of innate temperament that your kid might have. The other piece, though, which I thought Kyle was really interesting, and I didn't, I've never really thought about this too much, like this way, anyways, is that if if your son or my daughter is in a tantrum, the thing that we should try to resist doing is is trying to soothe them through it, right? Is trying to is trying to just be like, oh, it's okay, and not let them go through that tantrum. 
right? That because what happens is that then they see us as like an external self-regulator. Mm. So they know that they know that Kyle and Rupesh dads are going to be there to help me regulate my emotions. And so then they don't build that resiliency. And if that happens on a regular occasion and, and there's a pattern there, it then turns into a habit. Interesting. And so then they don't build that sort of self-regulating capacity because we are always there. And then, and, and I will absolutely admit, I mean, when they're in a tantrum, you know, Oh God, it's, you know, it's, you just want to get them quiet. I don't know what, where is there something that you're doing? No, I'm not, I'm not with your son or where uh, I'm the asshole. That's like pandering to them during the tantrum. Um, Certainly, okay. and my wife is very good at at doing exactly what you just said, sort of helping them. So she's okay. really, really good at saying, "Oh, I noticed that you threw your toy, and it seems to me that that you mm-hmm. are very frustrated." Uh, and she'll sort of talk him into understanding maybe why he's feeling the way he's feeling, and 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 she'll give a name to what it is that she thinks he's feeling. You're mad. You're frustrated. You're sad. And then she'll she'll say things like, um, I'm here for you when you need a hug. And I'm here for you um, when you're ready to kind of calm down and, and talk to mommy or whatever it is. But she doesn't say, oh, do you want to read this book? Oh, do you want a snack? Oh, do you want, oh, do you want this? Mm-hmm. Oh, do you want, and I'm, I'm the one that, that does that. And it's, um, and why do you feel like you do that? Even though like you might see your wife doing taking a um approach. it's a good question and a solid point of self-reflection that i haven't probably done to the extent that i should uh it's it's i generally always want him to be happy and mm-hmm. whatever that that sounds like an obvious thing for a parent to say but it's i don't think it's a really healthy expectation i don't it's it's certainly not reasonable and it certainly doesn't help him grow if he's mm-hmm. always happy and the expectation is he's always happy and that's sort of what I mimic. And anytime he's sad or mad or whatever, I try to remedy that with a distraction or a book that he likes or a toy that he likes or whatever it is. If that's sure. the outcome, if every time, so if he thinks every time I'm frustrated, I need to distract myself with something. I need to, you know, go do something that as opposed to just feeling this emotion and understanding why I feel it and then, understanding how I can deal with it, which is much more the approach that my wife mm-hmm. takes. So I think it's it's probably selfish a little bit of me because I, I mean, it's it's nice. <laughs> it's more fun to be a parent when your kid is in a good mood and he's fun, he's super fun to play with. And when he's happy, you know, he's just a really, really fun little person to be around. What is that? So uh, I'm curious so because there's, there seems like a, a clear difference in sort of that approach, how does your son react to that? Does he then want to go more towards dad because he knows he's going to get some treat or some reward or dad's going to help me get through this? Or or does he, do you see him kind of going towards your wife? Like, what does that look like? It's a, um, I generally, I don't intervene when my wife is taking that approach because I understand what she's doing and I understand that it's better for him long term. And I every time she does it I think I need I need to do this. And I have a couple books on hold the library for on reading more and learning more about 
child behaviors and sort of how to deal with, um, mm-hmm. you know, tantrums or whatever you want to call them, these expressions of emotion. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really know how to do it other than sort of watching how she does it, and she has read some books on it, and that's sort of where she's got it from. And so the outcomes really are when she's taking that approach, I try not to intervene because I know that there's a goal here and there's a long-term view. Mm-hmm. And he, um, whereas when it's just him and I and he throws a tantrum, I will probably, I bet you that he probably stops crying faster with me, but I bet you he throws mm-hmm. more tantrums with me. Mm-hmm. And that could be for mm-hmm. a number of reasons, but one of it could be, Oh, you know, when I cry a lot, dad just gives me something that I like, which isn't, mm-hmm, which isn't mm-hmm. great. And he's even started now, he's a bit of an actor at times and he's started, he'll sort of ham it up a little bit. And yeah. so I wonder if that's because I've, and it's not even me caving to what he wants. It's usually like, we'll usually tell him, well, buddy, you can't, you know, you can't have any more snacks or you know whatever oh no but you can't have like he has these owl cookies that he likes they're like arrowroot cookies and and he loves them but we don't want to give him more than a handful and so he eats three of them like and he wants more and more and we're like no but he can't have more and and, you know and then he gets super mad and we don't give him more cookies after he throws a tantrum but i will whisk Mm -hmm. him up and read him his favorite book um or something like that as opposed to just being like i know you want more and i know that you want more because they're yummy but you can't have more because they have a little bit of sugar in them or whatever it is. And so they're not good for you. And so they're a little treat, but you, you know, whatever, right? Like walking him through that sort of uh, thought process to kind of help him understand why he can't have them. And, and then to acknowledge that he's feeling how he's feeling. And all he hears is no more cookies. No more cookies. Totally. So yeah, I don't, I don't really know. Um, sort of, I haven't, noticed any distinct patterns versus how he behaves with me or my wife but if i was a betting man i would probably bet that he throws more tantrums with me because i he just gets something else that he likes do you notice in yourself when those moments are happening and you're kind of like i I might just kind of i'm going to say this loosely but kind of give in that maybe you're you're showing up in a certain state that maybe is not helping as well like maybe you just had a really shitty day or oh yeah i'm the most have you have you found that there's that sort of association and i'm the most patient father and husband in the world when i get eight hours of sleep like (laughs) but if i get less than that or if we have some nights where yeah where he's uh you know whatever he just has he has a stuff he knows or something and he's not sleeping well so he's up a couple times in the night and that happens a couple nights in a row uh, the first thing that goes is patience and and understanding with me. I'm I become a just a grump, um, and it's it's not good. But so, so certainly I understand the value for me and my family and our relationship of a good night's sleep, because that's the number one thing. If I am sleeping well, then every I have just this huge buffer, this massive um, pool of yes. resilience. And if I don't sleep, then I don't. I I still have a bit of it certainly, but I'll deal with things much more differently. And so it's, it's, so I, I, I wonder if there's, I wonder if this is turning into self uh, helping. Yeah, that's right. that's, that's fine. <laughs> uh, but I wonder if, cause, cause for me, I agree with the sleep thing. If I don't get that certain amount of sleep, but I also recognize that it's also a thing that we can't control. Right. And so are there things that 
you could do that are more in your control that can sort of help increase that buffer. And I mean, you talked about obviously meditation. There's some other things, but maybe if there's, well, you know, I'm sure there's. I mean, some it's it's interesting. So one certainly, um, so like meditation is one. But the thing I found, and this sort of um, speaks to what we were talking about before, if I pursue a hobby and I get lost in, and if I have time to myself to sort of really focus on something that I like, that improves my mood instantly. And so I've been reading a little bit about, um, it's sort of a buzzword now, but I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing that's a buzzword, but flow states and entering into flow states where you are mm-hmm. fully submersed in an activity and sort of the benefits that, that that has to being fully immersed in an activity and not thinking about anything else, being mm-hmm. very, very present on something. And it, you know, it has benefits like um, better emotional regulation is one of them, certainly uh, feeling more fulfilled and, and like more in um, just uh, feeling more enjoyment as, as well. Greater intrinsic motivation, um, feeling more creative, things like that. So what if, if I can sure. ever enter into a flow state through some activity, whatever it is, like playing guitar or, um, you know, woodworking or, or, doing yeah, or just hammering out sick ass podcasts. I yeah. find that really improves my mental, abil- uh, my mental state and my patience and just mm. even my overall happiness. And, and that then, you know, kind of, kind of, um, goes across all, all aspects of my life. But one of the ways to get into flow states, the quickest is to taking, uh, into healthy, risky activities. And so this sort of comes full circle back with our mm-hmm. conversation is like one of the fastest ways to get into flow is to doing things that are a little bit dangerous, but are within, sorry, so not dangerous, but uh, there's an aspect of risk to them, but, but mm-hmm. and you're sort of pushing yourself limit wise and they can be dangerous if you're outside of your expertise. But if if you're pursuing an activity that has some aspect of risk um, and it's it's within your skill set, or it's just beyond your skill set. So like you're getting a little bit better. I'm thinking things like uh, biking, uh, rock climbing, things like mm. that. Skiing is a great example. Uh, downhill skiing is a great mm. example. That is an unbelievable way to tap into flow very very quickly. And there's a is that because it just generates like a hyper amount totally. of presence? Because it's like on that edge of like kind of being dangerous you kind of really love it so it's like it's a, okay you're just totally engaged it's a hyper focused state and they real and so this is yeah. a, like a practical example but a lot of extreme athletes quote unquote extreme athletes enter into flow super easy but it's because they need to mm-hmm. be hyper focused because the consequences are there so without consequences you mm-hmm. don't enter into that state and so people can kind of mimic these um flow activities in their daily life by taking part in an activity that's um, sort of at the edge of your ability. So you're learning and you're, um, but it's still difficult for you. And if there's a little bit of a consequence there. So if you, even if you go like high wall climbing at a, at a indoor climbing gym um, and you get high up and you're on a route that's like right at your um, sort of limit, there's an element of danger there. Cause if you fall, you're going to whip a little bit on your rope but the rope's going to catch you. But having that little bit of danger will lock you into flow so much faster than if it mm. wasn't there. So that's kind of a, that's very a cool. um, meandering way of saying, yes, there are things I can do in my life. Certainly one is like breathing exercises and meditation. But but another way for me is to try to 
capture a little bit of this flow state through some kind of hobby or whatever it is. And that really, really mm-hmm. um, boosts a lot of healthy traits that I want to boost in me. And that then kind of gets passed on to my family. I have to think about if there's anything that I'm doing right now that kind of gets me, that kind of meets those qualifications of being in that flow state. Like it definitely, there are moments where I feel like I'm hyper present, but I don't know if it's like sort of has that danger, what about like high risk I mean, element. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I was thinking that, uh, so, you know, certainly when I'm lifting really heavy, I know there's an element that I can do it and, and I, and I'm very particular about techniques. So I know how to do these things safely. Uh, but when I'm pushing onto like those, you know, low reps, high amount of weight, there's certainly a little bit of anxiety that creeps up in terms of, okay, whether I can lift this and, and do it for a certain number of reps or whatever. And, and so I'm very, very present. Like I, I definitely am, I'm locked into like, okay, what's my spine doing? What's my hip doing? You know, just feeling that out. And I'm just, and so I know that when I'm done that, I am, I'm like, whoa, you know, like it just kind of, I come from this high state to just, whoa. So perhaps, yeah, that might, that might be an example. That, that's, that's, that's really cool. I think, uh, that flow, I, I actually had never, um, you said it was a kind of a buzzword, but I never yeah, you really, should, and, and sorry. So um, I've just picked up my phone here as your patch is talking and I, I, um, you know, it's like we're a podcast about mindfulness and all this stuff, but I, I just read this book called the rise of Superman and I can't remember who wrote it, but he provides tips on how everyday people can enter into flow more easily. There are ways for people that without that sort of consequence of danger can enter into flow in their mm-hmm. daily lives and 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 like the benefits to that mm-hmm. are pretty evident and um it's it's a relatively newish term um and the science is relatively new on it but it's also pretty conclusive from what i recall from that book but yeah i know we're gonna sort of end things off pretty soon i guess we mentioned flow what other what also came to mind and i and i we're definitely going to talk about this because i know we've sort of start planning out uh, these episodes, but talking about sort of the endocrine system and hormones and, and all that. But but I think what you'll, and sort of what I've learned from my wife, who's a naturopathic doctor, is just the importance of having balance in your hormones and what that could do for your state of mind and, and how you're showing up just from a physiological perspective. So you could be doing a lot of the mental stuff. You could be doing the physical things, but if you're not supporting your hormonal system, just from a, you know, whether it be from foods or making sure that you have those sort of basic building blocks to, to have a functioning hormonal system that could just, you might be setting yourself up for failure. And the funny thing is, is that, um, there, this book that I told you that I've read called woman code by Alyssa Vitti, I think is her name. She talks about she uses the word flow because it's essentially having um, teaching women how to get into alignment and, and be in flow with their, with their internal system, their internal hormonal Mm -hmm. system. So when you said flow, I also thought about that, but I think it's relevant in the sense of, um, you know, there are these things that we're more conscious about in terms of, you know, our mental side our physical side, all those kind of things, but we're less obviously conscious because it's just kind of operating in our system. But there's things physiologically that if you're not setting those things up for success, you might not be able to to get to that that flow or the the state that you actually want to because your physiological system is holding you back. Yeah, yeah, no, sense. for sure it does. Um, 
Yeah. yeah so, I, you know, we should probably, we're uh, at about an hour and 12 minutes here, and we thought that we'd try to make this one 45 minutes after our marathon last week. So um, we should start to wrap things up, I think. we, You know, so we started up this conversation initially talking about fear and risk tolerance. I think that we sort of like mm-hmm. touched on that, but we've touched on a lot of other things as well. So it's a bit of a, a mm-hmm. meandering conversation, I think, but I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. And I'm, yeah, and I'm happy good. for all the topics that, that we were able to cover. And, you know, like maybe we've sort of identified some stuff that we should talk about more in future episodes, things like flow state or whatever it is. So certainly appreciate the conversation, pal. Um, and uh, looking forward to having more meandering convos with you in the future. Always. Appreciate you, man. Yeah, buddy. Appreciate you too. Okay, chat soon.